Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special live edition of the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor of the New Statesman, and I'm joined by our political correspondent, Freddie Hayward, and our senior data journalist who runs our polling site, State of the Nation, Ben Walker. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Dominic Raab, his resignation and all of those revelations and what it means for the government, whether there has really been a Rishi Sunak revival lately and what the challenges are for Keir Starmer's Labour Party. And then in You Ask Us for the last 25 minutes will open up to questions from the audience. So it's the third cabinet minister who has had to leave Rishi Sunak's government in disgrace. Labour's trying to stick the Tory sleaze line onto Rishi Sunak as they've been trying to do mm. throughout his premiership. What is the political impact of this story for the government, Freddie? I think it's, it just fits into a broader story of the government. As you say, it's the third person from the cabinet to go. So I don't think it'll come as a massive surprise to people. I think Labour would have preferred it if they dragged it out for a while. If Raab stayed in the cabinet, they could have spent the next two weeks, three weeks calling uh, the government not looking after its civil servants or saying that Rishi Sunak hadn't actually addressed the issue of accountability and professionalism within government, which what, when he came in, when he stood on the steps in Downing Street, he said that's the key thing he wanted to do, that's what he wanted to change from the Boris Johnson era. And he's really struggled with that, given those three examples, in part because he's just inherited the same pool of MPs from which he has to pick ministers. It's the same people we had as Zahawi, Gavin Williamson. That we're coming to the end of a potentially the end of a 13-year period of Conservative government, and you are, you are going to get those scandals coming out bit by bit because you haven't had a fresh group of people to sort of rejuvenate the party and bring new ideas. So I think that's one of the reasons, but I don't think it'll be, it won't be revolutionary in terms of where the Conservative Party is seen because they've had these problems for a long time, and it's just the latest example of it. Mm. Do we have any idea, Ben, of how the public feels about the Raab story? Because, of course... It was during the Owen Paterson affair when mm. we saw the polls really start to move, mm. support fall from the Tories, and that was very much a sort of Tory sleaze story. Yeah. And there were, as Freddie said, there's been many stories like that since. Stories of sleaze since, stories yeah. of politicians being stereotypical British politicians. Are you surprised? Are you going to change your vote based on the statement of what you pretty much already know? That's the problem. Most people already have this expectation of what your politicians at the, stop, at the top are going to be. We don't appreciate how high cynicism is amongst the media in Britain. Now, not to insult those of us in this audience, but we are not the average Britain 
sitting here. Okay? You go into the Cambridge Literary Festival, you are <laughs> more logged on to politics than you otherwise would be. And the average Briton distrust of politicians at the top, distrust of the status quo and our institutions. Is, it depends on who you ask, but it's just as high as it is after, in the immediate aftermath of the expenses scandal. That's how high we are. We are right up there in terms of things. So Dominic Raab resigning over bullying, whether you read it or not, I don't think is necessarily going to change minds. How many voters actually paid attention to it? This is the thing, a story needs to go on for longer than a day. It needs to be on the Today programme, that, those three main stories, for longer than just one instance. It needs to be going there for a, a week, two weeks, and then it starts to the average Briton. I remember Alistair Campbell saying this on a podcast years ago, and he said, if you talk about long-term economic plan, or cost of living crisis, or get Brexit done, or take back control, these buzzwords, these quotes, when you're getting tired of them, when we're getting tired of them, that's when we know it's hitting through to the outer echelons of the engaged voter. And the outer echelons of the engaged voter is the majority Mm. of the voters. I don't think this is necessarily going to hit through. I think it's just going to be, oh, Someone else has resigned. Oh, okay. That's pretty much what we already knew. Six in, six in ten of us are already saying the next election should be a change election. It only feeds existent narratives and beliefs, really. But when you ask the public, do you think this politician was right to resign? They'll always say yes. They'll always say yes. And we had a YouGov poll on Thursday or Friday. It was Friday when he resigned, wasn't it? Only 10% of voters say he was wrong to resign. I think the number that said he was right was like 54% or so. And the majority of Tory voters said he was right to resign as well. Okay. What about the political implications in terms of the makeup of the cabinet? Because mm. Rob was a big ally of Sunak. I think he was the one during Liz Truss's run for the leadership who called her economic plans an electoral suicide yep. note. So he was out in Siberia during her short premiership and then brought back into the fold. Does it make Sunak weaker? He has appointed some people in his place who are also, you would describe as very close Sunakites. Yeah, Oliver Dowden is being given the role of Deputy Prime Minister. He basically runs the Cabinet Office at the moment, so he's a really close Rishi Sunak ally. you got to remember that it was him, Oliver, sorry, Oliver Dowden, Sunak, and I think he was a third one, I think it was Robert Jenrick, yes. who wrote that article in praise of Boris Johnson at the start of the leadership election back in 2019. So he is bringing some of his allies back, that's understandable. And I think it's Alex Chalk, who's gone to justice, a fellow Wickhamist, who's, you know, they don't think he's too different he won't cause Sunak much trouble but I think just thinking about what Ben was saying and how it takes quite a long time for these things to get to cut through to the public you've got to remember that much of British politics in the past two years or so has been dominated by these reports these ethical reports Mm -hmm. and so you know Priti Patel we've just seen a series of ministers have to go under these investigations, Boris Johnson. One of the reasons for that is why is it happening? Why do we constantly have complaints about MPs and the state's behaviour? It's part of the reason is because there's not a normal sort of HR environment whereby ministers are either a boss or an employee. What they really are is they're office holders. They're there because the king has appointed them and then they have responsibilities. They get paid uh, by virtue of that office. They don't, they can't, in a, in a normal, people keep saying in the past few days, if this happened in a normal workplace environment. If it happened in a normal workplace environment, you'd have a, a disciplinary hearing, you'd have people you go speak to them first and say you need to change your behaviour. But you don't really get that because the Secretary of State's often move around so quickly yeah. and it's all ad hoc and it's political. Ultimately, it's the Prime Minister who's the arbiter of who should be a state and who shouldn't. 
he decides the ministerial code. It's ultimately up to him. Therefore, it's ultimately political. So you yeah. have to wait until these things are either leaked to the press or there's enough of a furore amongst Tory MPs, perhaps before you actually see people being held to account for their behaviour. That's part of the reason, I think, that these things are always front and centre and keep occurring. The ethical report has really been a key theme, I think, in the past few years. Yeah, yeah, the ethical report, the ethics advisors, or the lack exactly. of, yeah. lack thereof, yes. That's really interesting because it's actually Rob himself in a Telegraph piece that he magically turned around quite quickly after his resignation. I think if you can file copy that fast, he should he come should and work for the New Statesman. Yeah. Yeah. He'll have some time on his hands to do that now, I think. But he, in that report, he paints himself as a victim of this yeah. non-normal HR system that you've just described. He called it a Kafkaesque process. Mm. He said he was a victim of trial by media. He suggested that some of these complaints were months, even years in, in the making, which wouldn't mm. happen in a sort of normal workplace. There'd be a bit of limitation on yeah. that. So it's interesting how it sometimes he's painting himself as the victim there and we if you're one of those 24 complainants you'll find that very jarring but it's interesting how these processes are also a headache for ministers and the prime minister being the arbiter of the ministerial code it's up to you to make that decision about what do i do with this my friend in Mm. politics my ally clearly from rishi sunak's letter to rab in response to his resignation he also thought there were some shortcomings in the way that it was dealt with it means that you have these dilemmas all the time with the pressure of the press waiting for your decision yeah Uh, Completely. And you've got to put it into context as well with the broader relationship between the civil service and the Mm. Conservative Party in the past two, three years. It's been really bad. There's so many reports of civil servants who have, first of all, been really disgruntled with their minister and vice versa. Many people in the Conservative Party now, including, see the civil service basically as a left-wing block to what they want to do. Back in the 30s, it was the Labour Party who were concerned about the civil service blocking their, their form of socialism and thought the establishment would hold them back. Now it's the Conservative Party who are saying these are the people who are stopping us doing what we want to do. This is just another example of that relationship deteriorating. Yes, and you can see how unhappy the civil service are just from the sheer number of leaks that yeah, we get exactly, now. Yeah. So not only leaks about ministerial behaviour, but also about policy areas, yeah. all the reaction in the Home Office to the Rwanda scheme. That really winds ministers up and it makes them make these accusations about the woke left civil service, unionised civil servants and things. It really is a sign of the unhappiness in Whitehall. Yeah. There is a malaise there because people feel like they really can't get anything done. Not least because this is changing all the time. Alex Chalk will be the 10th Justice Secretary in 10 years. Look at the state that our court system is in today. It really is the Cinderella service. No one, most of us, thankfully, don't really come into contact with this, with it, so we don't really see how bad it is, but it is literally crumbling. There yeah. have been reports about how the buildings themselves are stuck, stuck together literally with sellotape, mm. even exaggerating. So th- it does have a real-life impact for people when you have yeah. a politics that is, that, that is so changeable, and there is, a real, th- there is this real feeling of dissatisfaction within Whitehall. Yeah, completely. I think, (laughs) as well, you have to think about where Rishi Sunak is in making this decision. People have, many people have pointed at the delay. They said, OK, it took him 24 hours to come to the decision. Even though he knew what was coming, he probably had to read the report, etc. But he's had five months to think about and ponder on Dominic Raab's life, and not life, <laughs> his, uh, his role. And I think that's the few things that he would have been thinking about there is basically, how, first of all, how is it going to come across the civil service? Because we're speaking about that relationship. He knows that all the civil servants are going to be reading his response to the resignation letter. Is it going to be sufficiently supportive of the complainants or is it going to be very complimentary towards Dominic Raab, mostly the latter? And then he's also going to think, be thinking about the parliamentary party. That's key. That's key to see like it's been a, one of the key themes of his premiership so far. Can he grip the parliamentary party? Now, speaking to MPs in the past few months, 
lots of them actually quite sceptical about the Dominic Raab investigation. They basically said they want to wait and see the report. They also share this scepticism towards the civil service. They think there is, there's, there's lots of young, woke people who are compa- complaining <laughs> about... snowflake millennial Yeah, you're complaining about bosses for what used to be very normal behaviour. To be fair, if you read the report... The examples that they give of Raab's behaviour aren't that controversial. I want to say one of the examples, one of the key examples if, is Dominic Raab describing some civil servants' work as woeful. That's, it's, it's quite a stretch to go from describing someone's work as woeful to bullying. Maybe that's what we'll say to him when he files his first piece to us. <laughs> it's woeful. Yeah. Yeah. Then he'll complain. Um, yeah, and, but part of the reason for that, I think, was because there was so much confidentially involved in the investigation, so they couldn't really explain what the, the scenarios were. But you are, so Rishi Sunak is concerned about managing the Tory MP's response, yeah. and I think part of the reason he took so long considering it is because he wanted it to be seen as taking the Raab's situation seriously, not dismissing him out of hand just because of this report. So seeing how that plays out in the next week will be quite interesting. Yeah, and Ben, Labour's line on this has been... This is the same old Tory sleeves. They're trying mm. to draw a line from Boris Johnson's premiership, which was extremely unpopular towards the end, to Rishi Sunak's premiership. That, they think, is one of the main ways that they can try and really stick in voters' minds that this is the same party that's in power, because having a fresh face in charge has had some impact on yeah, people's does. sympathies. But... When you go to stand, sneak in on focus groups, as we sometimes do, or go and speak to voters when we're out on the campaign trail, people will often say they're all the same. They're all like this. How risky is it for Labour to use this Reese Lee's line when most people will respond, all politicians are like this, I couldn't get away with behaving like that in my workplace. That's something you hear a lot just pretty much gave it already, really. The, the Tory sleaze is not new. It's been going, it's a bit, to repeat a line, Tory sleaze, Dominic Raab, Rishi Sunak, very weak, blah, 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 blah. It's something that we've kind of thought about our leaders for a long time, for many years, probably long before Boris Johnson, long before... I don't even think David Cameron was able to clean it up or change perceptions. It has existed, I think, I don't know how long it is, maybe long, I'm 27, I think it existed before I was born, really, <laughs> this idea that politicians in Westminster have just been corrupt Put, use your insert profanity here. And uh, going hard on that is not exactly going to motivate people out because it's stating the obvious. And, uh, and we are in a particular time now, 2020 through to today, which is particularly quite unique, where public priorities, the, how we see the economy, how we see finance, has evolved in a way that we haven't seen for ages. Okay? You, I don't know how many of you pay attention to the polls. I do every single day. That's my raison d'etre, and I guess I enjoy it. I, I've been doing it for 10 years now. And, but anyway, Labour's ahead on the economy, which might not sound like much when you have Labour ahead on voting intention and Keir Starmer ahead of Rishi Sunak, but that's big. That's really significant because we haven't had a Labour lead on the economy since 2007 when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. That's pretty significant. That's a big shift. And how we see the economy, how we see finance is not how it used to be. Ten years ago, you may remember, some of you do if you're political junkies, Ed Miliband going hard on the cost of living crisis. This is when it was invented, cost of living crisis, invented by Ed Miliband, put about by him, and the voters kind of saw it and probably if asked, do you agree with this or disagree with this, they'd say yes. But then they'd also say, I don't really care about it. 
because I also agree with the line that we should deal with our debts, have to mm -hmm. make difficult decisions, we have to cut budgets. The very narrative, the very interpretation of what the economy is not what it used to be 10 years ago. This evolution since probably the coronavirus crisis is so significant we don't realise it because when you live through a revolution you don't notice it unless, until it's written after, until the events afterwards. And that's where we are right now. How we see the economy is so different and so significant that if you're, not, if you're talking about issues other than that, like corruption, like sleazy politicians that we already know exist, that we already take for good in this United Kingdom of ours where we all recognise the institutions need reforming, you're doing something wrong. Labour shouldn't really be going hard on this at all. Rather, they should say, OK, fine, Rob gone, Sunak weak, but the economy. What are you doing about that? What are you doing to bring prices down? What are you doing to sort out inflation? Are you building any new houses for people our age, your age as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all our ages. Who do me? What are Snowflake you? Snowflake <laughs> What are you doing to voters whose priorities are the economy, inflation, yeah. prices, and they're going to stay that way? Probably going to stay that way until the next election, because is whether or not Sunak brings halves inflation, sorts the economy out, GDP grows or whatever, our voters going to feel it, and I don't know if they will. And that's why. That brings us on excellently to our second topic of our discussion, which is, has there really been a Rishi Sunak yeah. revival? Now, is this a bit of an odd thing to be talking about, having just discussed what we've discussed? Not really, because there has been a little bit of a change in the mood in Westminster, at least, I think we can say, with the Windsor framework being signed, seeing off a Tory backbench rebellion over the mm -hmm. Brexit deal, and then that one poll showing a gap, the gap between Tories and Labour had narrowed. There started being whispers around the commentariat and politicians and jitters in the Labour camp, really, about the idea that Sunak was actually doing better than expected. And in some quarters, there was a belief that he may even be able to swing the next election when it comes to it. Ben, first of all, can you just tell us a bit about that poll and mm. why we shouldn't yeah. read too much into it? Yeah, I don't know if you read the Evening Standard or certain newspapers, but there's the odd column now appearing now that which talks about a fifth-term Tory win, Rishi Sunak pulling through, as you say, and could do it. And there's an, as you say, there's an air of excitement amongst certain strategists and Westminster politicos and all the rest of it. Now, what you need to know about the numbers is this. In, when Liz Truss arrived and left, the Labour lead was, over the Conservatives was hanging around 20 to 25 points. That's larger than what Tony Blair got. That's the large, that would represent, if repeated in election, the largest win ever, perhaps since the emancipation of the average voter. Okay? That's where we were in October, November, December and the start of January. Now it's starting to narrow. Rishi Sunak's arrival represents a bit of a cut with the old order, the old order being Liz Truss, rock bottom, basically. He was above the rocks at the start. He didn't start particularly well. More Britons didn't like him than like him, but you did have the Labour lead start to drift slightly because he represented a break. Mm -hmm. And it's worth bearing this in mind as well. In 2019, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party went hard on, when was it? Nine years of lay Tory rule, time for a change. But voters looked at Boris Johnson's Tories and thought, this is a new guy, this is a new party. They didn't associate Boris Johnson's Tories with David Cameron's Tories. And that's why he was able to get away with being fresh face, new ideas, we're going to level up Britain. Okay? It's, personality does matter a lot. We're not a presidential country by any stretch of the imagination. Because if we were, we would be, it would be neck and neck right mm. now. Because Keir Starmer, although he leads Rishi Sunak on favourability, on likability, it's only four points. That's like Joe Biden over Donald Trump. And if your interpretation of how the US voted, it was pretty a fine run thing, wasn't it? Okay? If we were a presidential system, it would be a fine run thing. But we're not. 
We do believe in two-thirds of Britain saying the next election should be the change election. That's where we are right now. And that's what I don't think the Tories can, what do you call it, jump over, reach. Mm. I don't think they can necessarily conquer that. But nevertheless, we are starting to see the polls narrowing and just uh, for these reasons. Rishi Sunak, new guy on the block, new personality, bit of a technocrat, but he has a technocrat with success to his belt. Starmer's also a technocrat, but he doesn't really have anything necessarily to promote or talk about or to be like, oh, he's a successful technocrat. Rishi Sunak does. Northern Ireland was received warmly by most Britons. The, whatever the detail of it, whatever your views on Brexit, most Britons said, OK, this solves something. OK, and most yeah. Britons said, OK, well done Rishi Sunak for that. And it was at that point that his favourability started jumping. The Tory parties, however, didn't. It was when Rishi Sunak made noises about boats about illegal immigration, refugees, all the rest of it, noises that pushed immigration up the agenda of what matters most to voters. When you talk about it for so long, eventually you will get voters paying attention to it. And that's what the government and, of course, the Conservative Party did. And what we are seeing now, the reason we are seeing the polls narrow, twofold. Got one, a Rishi Sunak personality, new guy, seems like a relatively successful technocrat, even though whatever you may think of it. And two, the noise over the boats, the noise over illegal immigration is going to those voters, those leave voters in Labour's traditional heartlands who are more motivated by immigration than the average Briton. In November, they were saying, I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to vote again. Now they're saying, I think I might vote again. And that's why the polls are narrowing, because those types of people are now a lot more certain about how they'll be voting at the next election when four months ago, they were totally not. Mm. Yeah, I think four months ago, the narrative was completely different. I remember writing a few pieces saying that Rishi Sunak is basically presiding over an extremely divided parliamentary party, and that basically means that he's got no chance of instituting or delivering an agenda. I still think that's largely true, but the the divisions within the party and the unity within the parliamentary party are much less now. He's got a much tighter grip, and that really matters. It means that you've got a unified message on media. It means that you've got some chance of getting things through parliament. It also means you're not going to get massive rebellions. And uh, you mentioned the Windsor framework. That was sort of held up as a totemic vote. This was whether Rishi Sunak could stand up to the people in his party with the hardline Brexiteers. One, one reason I think that he was able to do that is because he's actually brought quite a few Brexiteers into his party, people like Suella Braverman, Steve Baker, people like that. But I remember that day, I think it was a Tuesday, and it was the same day as Boris Johnson's Privileges Committee. And some of the murmurs that were coming out that day were basically that Boris Johnson is going to lead this huge rebellion against Rishi Sunak. He's going to say that Rishi Sunak hasn't delivered Brexit and now he's betraying what we were trying to do. So the numbers in that rebellion were absolutely key. I remember I was just sat right behind Boris Johnson in the Privileges Committee at a perfect sight of his hairline. <laughs> and it was freshly cut, freshly cut. And I remember 20 minutes into the committee where the bell started going in Parliament for the vote. Off he goes, he trundles off to vote to lodge his dissent with the Windsor Framework. And then he came back, I think it was about two hours or an hour in or whenever it was, the vote, the number of rebels was announced. And it was, I think it was 21 or 22. No way near enough for Boris Johnson to say, I'm the leader of this faction that is going to stand up to Rishi Sunak. I think part of the reason, the explanation for that unity is basically that Tory MPs have realised that Rishi is the best man in the party. He's the best shot they've got at keeping their seats. Boris Johnson 
had so much trouble when the polls started to fall, largely because Tory MPs often think in terms of whether they can keep their seats or not. The one thing that overrides all decisions on within the Conservative Party is whether they can keep power. That's the key thing for them, and they saw that Boris Johnson was becoming a liability rather than a benefit, and they, therefore they acted. What they don't think they realised was the precipitation with Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak and what happened over that year, but that was one of the key motivations. And now... And one of the reasons they could do that was because they could look around the cabinet and go, OK, these people aren't great. They're not very established. Rishi Sinan still a very much a young politician. Trust had her faults. And they could say, we can take someone up there, right? <laughs> who would they choose now? There isn't a leading light. There's not a leading rebel. There's not someone who's got the stamina and the status to, to challenge Rishi Sunak. And also, we're just running out of time. Personally, I think that's one of the main deciding factors in Rishi Sunak's premiership is that we're running out of time. He's got a year and a half left. That's part of the reason that his five missions are so short-term, they're so managerial, they're basically descriptors of the normal duty of government, partly because he doesn't have the time to get anything else done. So I do think, even if he looked extremely vulnerable when he first came in, his position within the party now is much more secure. It's really interesting you say that they've, sort of Tory MPs who otherwise might have been discontent with his mm. leadership have realised he's probably the best man that they've got for this moment. Because I think Labour are realising that Rishi Sunak is the best man that the Conservatives have for this moment. And while they used to brief quite robustly, and I think we've spoken about this on the podcast before, about how they weren't scared of a Rishi Sunak yeah. premiership. As one person in the Labour camp put it to me recently, we were always going to get a grown-up in Downing Street in mm. the end. And this, is, this was sort of their nightmare because Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer's cells are quite similar, as Ben was saying. The only difference is that people remember that Rishi Sunak delivered the furlough scheme and yeah. more recently delivered a success on Brexit, whereas Starmer can't say the same things because he hasn't had that record in government. And so it is difficult for Labour, and you're seeing the way that they're trying to respond to it by attacking Sunak the man with these ad campaigns that have been quite controversial. And do we think that these kind of attack ads are going to turn voters off? Are they going to paint Sunak as someone who is a mm. negative figure? Are they going to work or are they going to have the unwanted side effect of pulling the Labour Party apart? Because there's been a lot of attempts to try and manage the parliamentary party who are, lots of MPs are against that kind of campaigning in the Labour Party. There have been, trying to event, trying, there have been attempts to try and calm them down a bit from the leadership office because they don't want to look again like they're the divided party. Yeah, I think it's largely just a Westminster story. This is what political parties do. They do say quite outrageous and tenuous things. One of the interesting things I think I read in the post-poster reporting was that most <laughs> of the funding went into Twitter. It didn't actually go into Google and Facebook, and that advert, advert didn't actually appear elsewhere. Most people don't use Twitter. They do use Facebook and they do use Google. So if you want to normally where you want to uh, run a political advertising campaign, it's use those platforms rather than Twitter. Whereas all the political journalists, all the MPs and what have you are on Twitter, and hence we've got this big furore about the toxicity toxification of the mm -hmm. Labour Party and the way that they're rejecting a gentler politics. But I was speaking to one shadow minister about this on Wednesday. He said, you know, people have said to me that if we go like this, then they're going to come hard on Keir Starmer. So of course they were going to go hard on Keir Starmer anyway as soon as we get to the election. So they're quite practical about it and they just think this is part of the cut and thrust of politics. I think the division within the parliamentary party of the Labour Party is potentially the most interesting and 
potentially important things to come out of it. Mm. Pricing in that they're always going to go after Starmer anyway, I think was a big part yeah, of exactly. this decision. As one of them made the point to me, the Tories have the Daily Mail to do this stuff for them. Yeah. We don't, so we have to do it ourselves. That yeah. is as cynical as it is, really. And perhaps it is, from their perspective, the only way that they can play dirty because they know that it's going to be quite a dirty election. But this kind of thing does put voters off, doesn't it? It's, ben, it's the kind of thing that voters expect from politicians and find off-putting. Toxic debates do put people off. And it's worth bearing this in mind. I always love to mention it, which is that everyone remembers the rise and rise of UKIP 2010 through to 15 and 16. And we always remember... They were rising for a reason, because anxiety over immigration was high. People did see it as a number one issue. Sometimes the economy took over or whatever. But every time UKIP rose in the polls, attitudes to immigration softened. So you saw 2013, 2014, the local elections, my favourite elections, which I strongly recommend you tune into on the New Statesman website <laughs> when we do cover it, when they did rather well. UKIP did really well winning the Fenlands and north of here and Lincolnshire and Essex and whatever. The BBC, the media, generally us, although I was 18 at that point, they decided to pay a lot more attention to immigration. What was it, the big bad immigration debate on Channel 5, I think it was called, I think it was. And it was at that time when attitudes were starting to soften. It was when people thought, oh gosh, that's Nigel Farage, that's UKIP. I don't want to be associated with that side so I'll soften a little bit, yeah. I'll take the middle ground or whatever. And there's a risk, I think, perhaps for Labour and the Tories, which is that if you make a debate so toxic, they'll either take the middle ground or they'll leave politics altogether. Or they'll get so engaged, they'll take the complete opposite version to you. I, the funny statistic is this, is that in 2013 through to 16, the share of Britons who wanted open borders and abandonment of all immigration controls went from, I think it was 0% to 6%. It actually became a noticeable figure. And then it went away the minute UKIP went away, the minute Brexit went away. Mm. It's, it's, sometimes it's a response, isn't it? There's your opponent, I'm going to be the absolute opposite of them. This toxic debate that's going to inevitably come because this is going to be a change election. To reiterate, two-thirds of Britain say the next election is a time for change. I take the view. How does the Prime Minister of the day, the incumbent party, the institution, how do they overcome that? I don't think they can. Because whatever economic change you make, you are not going to necessarily bring prices down. You're not going to make up for the economic damage over the past three years, let alone the past 13. So that's why I think it's almost like whatever the polls now, it's not really going to change. So of course it's going to be toxic. Regarding the posters, I know that Labour MPs are getting complaints from members saying this is not us, mm. this is not us, we shouldn't be doing this. And I don't think people have been leaving, but there's been that very much, we want a meeting about it after the election, <laughs> after this issue. This is the thing with the Labour Party. We love to have meetings about <laughs> meetings, really, which is very annoying. I understood, though, and you can see it in their heads, why they did these posters why they thought they got in a room it's like a uh, camel by committee have you heard of that before it's a bit like that where they all recognize okay we've got to go hard on crime we've got to show that labor's tough on crime Ooh, rishi sunak is a positive personality we've got to decimate like that <laughs> just like the media just like the tories decimated ed Miliband. Yeah. you know stabbed his brother in the back 2010 through to 15 we've got to do that to rishi sunak okay so what will we do we'll associate rishi sunak with crime and child abusers and all the rest of it really that's what the posters essentially did, isn't it? And it, it, again, it's camel by committee and it didn't really work because you are distracting yourself from the ball. The ball being, you are going against the status quo. You need to attack that, not the man, Rishi Sunak, which 30 to 40% of Britain's actually quite, and it's worth bearing in mind, 30 to 40% 
can be an election-winning number, yeah. depending on how mm. things are. And this is the, one of the key things, talking about Sunak's broad revival, isn't it? That the fundamentals yeah. haven't really changed. The economy is still in a, a sorry state. Inflation is still at 10%. We're still having two years of the greatest decrease in the living since the 50s. Those facts, those... Uh, to determine the way that people experience politics and the way that they experience their lives hasn't really changed, even if Rishi Sunak now has a slightly less rebellious parliamentary party. Those topics, that's why we still see the economy coming right at the top of uh, voters' mm. priorities every single time, even though in Westminster it feels as if the shift is occurring. Yeah, I'd argue the biggest political story this week has been the record supermarket inflation figures, yeah. really, because that is how, like you say, it's people's day-to-day experience of politics, the economy. I think with the polling that we've run ourselves, Ben, we found that people are blaming the government for the way that prices are rising. Mm. You can't really blame them when the government is set, is one of their pledges is to halve inflation. Mm. They know it's not really in their gift to halve inflation. It's the Bank of England's job to do that, but they're trying to take credit for when it might happen. And then also the problem is that people are associating the word economy now with prices, wages and interest rates yeah. rather than debt and deficit as Ben described before and so that's, that is the fundamental issue for the government and they can't change it themselves even if they try and make it one of their pledges. After the break we'll be taking questions from our live audience at Cambridge Literary Festival. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman you can get all our episodes ad free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. 
really. It was 25 points in November and December, 20 points at the end of January, 19, 18, 17, 16. It's just drifted. It's moved forward. It's moved just narrowed. Every week, it's half a percentage point, which you don't really notice unless you look at it over the course of four weeks. Now, some pollsters do struggle to get representative samples of the UK public sometimes. And the reason they do it is because sometimes when you get a thousand people, sometimes they're too logged on. They're too awake to the news almost. And uh, this is the thing, most of us aren't. Most of us aren't paying attention to the budget on the day it comes out. So really, there were two polls which were put out on the day of the, it is called a budget still, isn't it? They have yeah. it, because it used to be spring statement and then, which wasn't as big a key issue. But no, on the day of the budget, spring statement, there were to two honest, polls. they've started calling each financial statement a budget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah two, which they always yeah. used to do. Yeah. 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 Ah, yeah. At the end of this budget, there were two polls which were put out and they asked them, what is your snap response to it? You had one poll which had 80% of Britons with a view. How can 80% of Britons have a view on the budget the minute it's come out? That's a sign of a very logged on sample, a very sample, very much switched on to the news, on Twitter all the time, all the rest of it. And the other poll had about like 50% with a view, okay, who were probably hearing a glimpse of it on the radio on the way home or getting a notification, one of the many hundreds of BBC notifications we all get every day. That's more representative when you have more don't knows put bluntly. And this is the thing, some, some of the more logged on polls, which are responsive to every single news story, like the Dominic Raab one, some polls will show a tightening or a widening because of a snap news story. Others that don't have as many logged on voters that have quite, quite a representative sample won't. And they won't see a much of a shift from this Raab story. So I hope that answers your question. It just depends on how logged on these voters are. That's how I describe it, logged mm. on voters. Yeah. And actually, I should say, I'm on the Ipsos Mori knowledge panel of people to be polled, and I always think I'm warping it, because it will say things like, how aware are you of levelling up? And I'm like, extremely aware. <laughs> Against my wishes. Next question, please. Hi, I've got a question about the SNP and the, the meltdown over the last few weeks, and how that's been seen within Labour and Tories, because that, for me, seems like a, a huge opportunity for Labour it, that has come out of nowhere. So... We'd just love to get the perspective on that. That's a great question because we were talking about the sort of jitters in the Labour Party mm. with these like, changes in the polls and some of Sunak's successes that we were just discussing. But actually this implosion of the SNP and simply the fact that Nicola Sturgeon is no longer First Minister has been a huge gift for Labour. Yeah. Keir Starmer's been up in Scotland a lot. Yeah. They've got the local elections ahead in England, but actually, ironically, I think there's been a lot of visits to Scotland in recent weeks. Yeah, and it's also a huge gift to unionism as well. We are seeing, I think, we're finally we're sensing some impact from Sturgeon's departure and the divisions within the SNP play out in the independence polling as well. It is interesting, as speaking to some SNP MPs this week, they are just head in hands about what is going on. <laughs> they can't believe it. It's just because he sort of, there was almost an illusion of the strength of the SNP because Nicola Sturgeon was such a forceful figure in British politics. She got such widespread praise from the commentaria and from the newspapers, I think in part because they almost just wanted to look north and say, oh, isn't she better than Boris Johnson or what have you? But anyway, that now once she's gone, we're, we're seeing the insides of the SNP and lots of it is quite ugly. If their own making, I say. So that's playing out now. And I think in Westminster, you are a sense of see, feeling that division and that sort of frustration come to the fore. 
I don't know. Do, do you remember? I, I wrote a piece once about the SNP membership. Did you? I don't know. I read everything you write. Oh, then. Thank everything you. you write. I don't know of if course. you edited it actually, but I wrote about the SNP members and uh, what they think about certain yeah. things. Yes. To be honest, and I got it wrong, and I got it quite badly wrong. Mm. And uh, okay, I didn't edit it then. No, nothing to do with it. This is the thing. You ask SNP members what they think of same-sex marriage. They're just as supportive as the average Labour member, as the average Lib Dem, as the average Green member. But then you get into the specifics, and we never, no one ever really polled the specifics. No one ever really polled about the Gender Recognition Act or how many of them voted leave, which is never talked about. I really think we've got to appreciate this about the SNP yeah. voter base. Around about a third, yeah, a third of it, actually, if I remember rightly, voted leave in the 2016 referendum, which I think was more than among Scotland as a whole. So the SNP voter base was more diverse than Scotland. And we fail to appreciate that. We fail to appreciate also that SNP members more are not concentrated in Glasgow or Edinburgh or Falkirk. They're out in the sticks. They're out in Fife, in the Highlands, in Dundee. But Dundee's, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I like best night out in Dundee I ever had once there. But <laughs> this is the thing. We have misconceptions about progressive parties, or we yeah. made an assumption here in no, well, not in Westminster, here in the, the English bubble, the English intellectual bubble, I don't know what you want to call it here. We made an assumption about SNP members, about voters, that they're all progressives. They're not. Mm -hmm. They're a lot very diverse. When you're trying to represent, when your core purpose is to represent one half of the country on a fundamental issue of const on constitutional identity, you're going to get everybody. Get used mm. to it, really. And I don't think the more logged on, I'm using that term again, the more logged on SNP members appreciated that. And they're suffering as a consequence. The thing with Nicola Sturgeon is she was a primary driver of independence, of support for yes. In 2020 through to 21, she showed how to do lockdown differently, even though the policies weren't exactly different. It was pretty much the same stuff wheeled out by London, but Scots were saying, oh, England are doing it badly, but Scotland are doing it all right, even though the policies were the same. She showed how an independent Scotland could be governed, and then she fell. And there's a bit of a, there's a vacuum now, there's silence yeah. now amongst uh, how people feel about the future of Scottish independence. Yeah, and it could make a big difference to the way that Labour fights a general election. We're about to, we could have a by-election in Rutherglen that could represent to us whether there will be a true Labour revival in Scotland. But if they can win back seats in the teens in Scotland, then it takes some of the pressure off the parts of England where yeah. they still it's still a bit touch and go. Starmer's reputation isn't necessarily the best. Are voters simply going to stay at home or will they come back to the Conservatives? It completely changes that calculation in England for them. Takes some of the pressure off, really. To put it simply. Just okay. one, one final thing on the SNP. Yeah, yeah. Do you think we are going to get the SNP intimating a lot more that they are considering or thinking about or throwing into the air the idea of a coalition with the Labour after the next election? So I think that's going to be a theme that's going to be coming out much more prominently in the next year or so. Yeah. You've obviously mentioned a bit on rhetoric about immigration and asylum seekers. You recently did a podcast episode on social conservatives and the future of British politics. Mm. Do you think as economic pressures continue to bite and the situation is quite dire, that both parties will increasingly drift towards more conservative talking points as a distraction. And you think that will, what the impacts will be on both of them electorally in terms of helping them or maybe causing a backlash with kind of shifting goalposts and the toxification of debate like you've discussed? Yeah, it's a good question. Something that I always say is when people ask me about 
parties using culture wars as talking points. So I always say culture wars are free. <laughs> you don't have to make any funding commitments in order to start a culture war, which is exactly, as you say, it can be a distraction, but can, it can also just be simply a way of signalling your values to voters without actually promising anything particularly solid, but also drawing your dividing lines with your main opponents. So I do think that there is going to be more of a tendency to using that kind of political tactic. And as we discussed in our social conservatism podcast, the Labour Party is not afraid to be seen as a socially conservative party on some issues. And one of the reasons that they're doing that is because they don't want to frighten off these voters that they're, you know, they're now starting to use the Stevenage woman test, apparently, behind the scenes. So everything they say, they want to run it by this sort of mythical woman who... I came through Stevenage when I came here today, so I was very excited to be in, in Labour's wannabe heartlands. But yeah, they want to make sure that they don't frighten the horses from a sort of part of England or demographic of England that they see as fundamentally quite nervous about them still. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a very good question. I think it's, as Ben's suggested earlier, immigration is absolutely key to the Conservative Party's strategy for the next election. I do think in some respects, I was at a Reform UK rally in Derby, a self-styled rally in Derby on Saturday, which was fascinating. And what you were generally seeing is that Brexit had become this amorphous, swollen host for everyone's anxieties and gripes. The, I, I spoke to one person and I asked him, is Brexit done? He said, no, of course not. We're still a member of the ECHR. And that's what the ECHR has nothing to do with the EU. He said, well, it doesn't matter. We still, if we don't leave the ECHR, we're still going to have high immigration. And then in our following conversation, he mentioned recycling, Yesminster, the king, fracking. <laughs> it, it was just became such a big symbol for so many of the things that he didn't like that is, there's a side to this debate that is leading to that as well. Just on the Conservatives more specifically and why I think we're having this effect in reform, why some people are turning to reform and what have you, is that the Conservatives' rhetoric on immigration is breaking with reality. They aren't doing what they said they would do. And, and uh, the channel crossings are much more visible, not because yeah. the numbers are going through the roof, but basically because these people used to come in lorries and now that route's been closed and now they're in boats, which we can see and we can't see them in the lorries. And the dishonesty at the heart of this, much of this policy is that they try to institute some of the solutions with the Nationality and Borders Bill. You could already say if someone arrived on a boat or what have you that they were inadmissible under the asylum seeker laws under that bill and now they basically said okay now we're going to say that you can't apply for asylum if you arrive through that route it's the same and the real problem that they can't return people is they as the polite term now is but basically deport people back to where they came from is because we don't have the arrangements in place the reason that albania and is getting lots of people being sent back to albania and the numbers on albanian immigrants across the channel is going down is because we have an agreement we don't have agreement with many of the other countries where people come from so I do think it's a dishonest policy, and I think most of it is to do with, as Ben said, trying to get over some of Rishi Sunak's Remain vibe and say, look, I'm actually quite a social conservative as well, and tap into some of those anxieties and gripes that were so prevalent in Derby. And something that I would also add to that is that it, it's, it's a Rishi Sunak tactic at the moment, but it was new Labour playbook as well, to yeah. be very harsh on asylum seekers, use this rhetoric, bogus asylum seekers, they're playing the system, introduce all of these quite nonsensical measures, like it was the new Labour that were the ones who said that they couldn't work, for example, which has been disastrous. 
But under New Labour, of course, you had a huge surge of immigration from Europe, from the EU. And we're seeing that now. Immigration figures are at a record yeah. high. That's something that Conservatives don't really want to talk about that loudly because it doesn't play well with some of the voters that they want to hold. And so they have to, or they feel they have to talk tough on this, these other people who are coming in through different routes. And like Freddie says, that's, it's disingenuous. It's, it's electioneering, really. And you said that we don't have return agreements with most countries and the ones that we do have, they'll crow about the figures of people being deported. But we did used to have an agreement with the EU when we were in it, the Dublin Treaty. It didn't work that well, in fairness. But I've actually spoken to someone who recently crossed the channel here. And he said, we all saw Britain, since Brexit, we all saw Britain as the second chance at Europe. Because what would happen is they'd settle in Germany and then eventually the Dublin Treaty would catch up with them and they'd get sent back to Southern Europe, which was the first safe country that they landed in. And they didn't want to stay in those countries because mm. there's not as good prospects in those countries. And ironically, we've made ourselves more of a target. There is a bit of a debate in Westminster and in, in some journalism at the moment about, oh, didn't you guys realise that Rishi Sunak was actually a social conservative? As if this was a surprise. He's a Brexiteer, he's a Conservative Party. It's just that people thought that this man in a nice suit who spoke in a coherent, clear and respectable way and who didn't want to pick fights with the EU or with France or what have you would be more socially liberal. I, I struggled to see that necessary connection there. Yeah. And then just on how this rhetoric, whether this rhetoric is way worse, I do think the debate's changed. And it is, post-Brexit, it is more acceptable to talk about people or to talk about migration in a slightly more inflammatory way. We are seeing that, I think Starmer has been done that a few times as well mm -hmm. at PMQs. But we did have David Cameron go to the EU and then basically say, we're going to start cutting benefits for EU migrants. He at one point, he described migrants as a swarm. These things aren't new, and we shouldn't overstate how, how bad rhetoric on migration has got. It's, it's, always, it's been quite mm -hmm. bad for a while. Yeah. Can I just go back to your point about New Labour? They created the rhetoric. It's almost like they created the rod that eventually broke their own back. They... It, 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 to answer your question, madam, about, about whether it, they will go to harsher rhetoric, whether they will in the next election, um, they probably will, but they don't have to. I don't think they, they need to. Attitudes have softened over the past 10 years. Don't get me wrong, okay? The average Briton wants more controls as opposed to fewer, but we have softened in certain perceptions. The idea that immigrants generally bring a net benefit to Britain, overwhelming majority now believe that. It wasn't like that 10 years ago. It really wasn't like that 10 years ago. We have shifted by so much. Again, I make the point when you live through it, you don't notice it until afterwards. And we have moved through it exactly. I almost feel quite, it's almost like these strategists have got a stereotype about the voter. I think, oh, we've got to throw red meat to them. There's a meme about this big Rob kind of guy, isn't there, <laughs> that we think, oh, we've got to appease him. And if we don't appease him, we're not going to win the next election. No, you don't. It's almost like they look at the polls without looking at the polls. They don't appreciate we've softened. They don't appreciate we've changed. Now, don't, you've still got, you've got to sound strict on it. You've got to sound... To be honest, I thought Starmer was doing the right thing a few weeks ago, which is we've got to solve the boats. We've got to find ways of, like, you know, allowing safer passage, stopping the boats. You've got to stop the boats because it's not a safe way of passage. Mm -hmm. okay? And I thought that's something most Britons would agree with. That's okay. The specifics of which, leave it to whatever... It doesn't, it's not exactly important. The general vibe about immigration, believe in controls, but we believe the contribution is positive. Most Britons would agree with that. 
Mm. Just stick to that. It's not, I reiterate, it is not a, as big a motivating issue. Voter motivating <laughs> issue <laughs> as it used to be, okay? The cost of living, prices, economy, it matters most to all. Mm. Even those red meat voters in the so red wall, the economy is king there. The prices, jobs, cost of living, housing, that is what matters most to people. Sorry, the NHS as well, which we haven't mentioned. No. Talking about the boats may have moved the polls, but it's still putting you on course to being kicked out of office by landslide proportions. Okay, that's where we are right now. It's back to the fundamentals, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Back to the fundamentals. Do we have another question? Yeah. And we've touched on it very briefly there. We're, we're in the middle of an extraordinary series of public sector strikes mm. that mm. barely seem to be mentioned, including junior doctors and nurses that are completely unprecedented, those strikes, are they cutting through? Is the government being held responsible for them? And if not, why not? Great question. And it's really good that you mentioned the strikes because that is one of the fundamentals that we should have been talking about. Ben, are these, how does the public feel about yeah, these yeah. strikes now? I'm trying to remind myself. Uh, <laughs> right. So junior doctors, overwhelming majority back them. This is the thing. We have evolved. Actually, we had this question, similar question, when we were here in November, I think, actually, when we talked about yeah. the strikers. And it depends on who you are. Depends who's striking. And uh, to be honest, that, again, is an evolution. I remember teachers started striking in 2013, I think it was. Most Britons didn't like that. Actually, mm. in fact, I think a plurality of Britons wanted to ban the idea of strikes. Okay? We've moved on from that. The majority of Britons support teacher striking now. Junior doctors overwhelmingly, certain rail workers, yeah, tube workers, no, <laughs> not at all. I always take the view Mick Lynch has been good at bringing the issue to the fore, but when you ask people what they think of Mick Lynch, it's quite divided, actually. <laughs> he is quite a divisive figure on, 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 among certain voters. He might rally certain Labour bases, but the median Britain, bit of a turn-off, really. It, that's the problem. Yeah, we've definitely evolved on strikes. We've definitely evolved on sympathy with public sector workers. Again, it's the interpretation of the economy. Dealing with our deficits, living within our means, that's out the window because how can you live within your means when your means aren't enough? That's what most Britons think. I think it's just that it just adds to the general vibe. I don't think there's any evidence to prove that strikes are driving it. Just it's Who said it? It was actually a producer, Adrian, who said it as well. He's at the back there. He said... When you switch onto the Today programme, negative news story after negative news story after negative news story, it adds to something, it adds to a general vibe that the country's not working. It's 1979 all over again. James Callaghan might be more liked, but it's the Conservatives promising change back then. It, I think we're going to head to a similar position, really, in the mm, next year. Yeah. Sunak might pull ahead of Starmer, but the general vibe of the need to change will pull yeah. through. Yeah, and I think the general, the higher levels of public sympathy with some strikers compared to strikes in the... In, previous sort of political eras comes from the fact that people know that it's not the strikes that are making the public services so bad. Anyone who's used the NHS on a non-strike day or in the past few years will know that the issue is there's not enough staff, the budgets are stretched. Same with the trains, the train companies are appalling. And so people know that it's not really, yes, like Ben says, public sympathy for train workers is different from those working in the NHS, but still people know that it's not really the people going on strike that are making them bad. And so I think that was what was missing from the strikes that you were talking about that we had back in 2013 or before this real public services crisis started to hit after so many cuts for so long. Yeah, and I think there is a broader sympathy because we're all going through the same thing. Everyone is feeling inflation. Whatever your pay packet is, it's now you can buy fewer pints with it. You can live yeah. in a less <laughs> nice house or you can go on holiday less. These things are felt by everyone. So if someone says, OK, actually, I need some more money, please, 
the response from many people go, yeah, well, so do I, so I get it. So you've got a recourse to do that through the union. Maybe I don't, maybe you do, I don't know. Yeah. But the sympathy is there. Whereas I think, I remember, correct me if not, but lots of the teacher strikes in 2013 were about reform and mm. it was about what the Department of Education wanted to impose on schools. This is all economics now. It used to, as Ben says, it used to be about the deficit. Now it's about prices, wages. We're getting back to the more traditional cut and thrust of a political economy. And I think that's, that's bleeding through into this broader sense, as you say, Anoush, that people need a change and they do sympathise because we're all feeling it together. We're all feeling inflation. It affects everyone. Yeah. Can I just go, go yeah, add to this? I've just kind of hit me hit upon it just now. When most migrants come to Britain, they, the priority for them is survival, Okay pleasures of other things don't really matter. You vote for the party that will guarantee your survival. That's why first generation, second generation immigrants and eventual citizens almost overwhelmingly vote Labour. And when you're settled, you start to look further afield because you are settled, because you care about other such things. We are starting to notice this in certain parts of Blackburn and Leicester, which used to be 80% Labour. We're now seeing Tory gains and watch out for the local elections in Leicester because Labour's stranglehold on Asian voters is questionable. It's Mm. not going to stay that way because Asian voters have settled, they're thinking about things further afield, some Asian voters may have socially conservative views and may act vote accordingly. And we're seeing the reverse happen to most Britons because we don't have the time to care about pleasure politics, it's more survival politics now, it's the fundamental of prices, public services, Mm. all of that. Thank you so much. I think that's all the time that we've got for questions. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast recorded live at Cambridge Literary Festival with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and Ben Walker. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to all of you for coming and for your great questions.